Hey, Hannah, are you excited for the show today? I'm very excited. Did you memorize all the names of all the characters? There's only one character I remember. Green Guts. Green Guts. <laughs> well, tell us about Green Guts. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, there really isn't much to say about Green Guts, except for he bets as fearlessly as he fights, but with much less success. Mm. That's pretty much it. I'm so excited to talk about the Reaver and the Windblown taken from Feast for Crows and the Dance of Dragons. Two chapters back to back that we put back to back that are not character named, which is exciting. Hannah and I had dinner this week with our friend Brendan B. Fish and our new friend Eliana. And if you guys don't know who they are, we've had Jeff slash Brendan B. Fish on here a couple times and Eliana. A couple times. A couple a couple hundred times. <laughs> um, we're always begging for him to come back. Um, he and Eliana are both moderators over at the A Song of Ice of Fire Reddit. And Eliana is a co-host on Maester Monthly. Um, if you guys haven't checked out that podcast, it's one of my favorites. And Jeff also pops in there fairly frequently as well. So they do lots of great stuff. You should check it out. And we had a ton of fun at dinner this week. And every time, so every time I hang out with people from A Song of Ice and Fire, I'm always like, oh, you know, we'll probably not really talk about A Song of Ice and Fire that much. Like, we'll probably just catch up on each other's lives and like get to know each other. And then we just talk, talk about A Song of Ice and Fire <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> so. I know that we were excited to read both of these chapters and discuss them on the podcast. But after hanging out this week with them, I feel like the setup for the Reaver and for the Wimbledon was heightened even more. And I don't even really know how to how to do this. What did you think about these? Which one was your favorite? I don't know why I'm asking. Because <laughs> um, I remember Jeff is overwhelmingly like the wind It's like my favorite chapter or one of his favorite chapters. Yes, but Jeff also overwhelmingly appreciates Quentin Martell and understands and gets mm-hmm. him. I think that's kind of a hard question. I thought that the Windblown had a lot of really interesting characters. Um, and I really liked the Reaver just because I'm much more interested in what's happening with the Greyjoy plotline. And everything that happened in that chapter was so wild. Ridiculous. That I couldn't believe it. So I would probably say that's probably the one that I enjoyed the most. I felt like reading the Reaver, I was watching a movie the whole time with just the amount of imagery and battles and brotherly back and forth i don't know so i think that that was probably my favorite out of the two but it's interesting to have these two groups of people coupled back to back especially when we're the goal is the same thing yeah daenerys yeah and we've had with the lost lord that we just read and then these two chapters something that i'm really excited to talk about and that i've been thinking a lot about since i read these and that we've got all of this talk about Daenerys and who she is and what she's doing. And people are starting to converge on her, basically. And we've got all these different plot lines of people trying to get to her, which is really, really interesting. And basically, this windblown chapter starts off with a he said, she said, I heard it from so-and-so, who heard it from so-and-so about what Daenerys is basically up to. Meanwhile, Daenerys has 10 chapters over the course of this reading order and, and 10 chapters only in... A Dance with Dragons. They could have left Daenerys out of the TV show for a season like Bran Stark. <laughs> Can you imagine? It's interesting, though, because we don't spend a lot of time with her, specifically in this reading order, to hear what other people have to say about her and the different rumors that are being talked about her. And it's interesting because in this chapter, Quentin is starting to get a little bit nervous about who she is because he's hearing all these different rumors and and he he thinks at one moment, what if she's as murderous as her father? Must I still marry her? And I think that that's interesting to kind of get this perspective of the grapevine 
of this person who is supposed to be powerful and important and the talk of Westeros, you know? What do you think that information is meant to feel like to us through the lens of Quentin Martell? Because I know that we're getting basically the same word through different characters over the course of both The Feast for Crows and A Dance of Dragons, but this chapter specifically was the one of the pair that was based in A Dance of Dragons. So if we were reading in the published order, it would have been years later after we already know and understand what Daenerys is up to, but we haven't yet had Danny chapters if you were just coursing through Feast. But when you reach these talks of rumors, I feel like we're getting information that we already know. I think you're referencing how they speak of her brother bringing her to call Drogo and then maybe she having Khal Drogo take care of her brother and then she taking care of Khal Drogo and all of a sudden becoming Khaleesi, stuff like that. Yeah, and they talk about how she fed her dragons on human flesh and bathed in the pool of virgins to keep her skin smooth and supple. Blood sacrifice, lies as easily as she breathes, turns against her own on a whim, broken truces, tortured envoys. All of this stuff, exactly. <laughs> I think that this is something that Danny sometimes thinks of herself and we see that happen a little bit throughout, especially later, as she kind of struggles to navigate what she's doing, where she's going. And she has these moments of, am I like my father? Am I turning into my father? And we also, have the, as the reader, sometimes have those moments as well. And so I think it's interesting that the common people, quote unquote, because Quentin isn't a common man, but people who aren't with her are having these same questions and thoughts. Because if you look at it, at the end of the day, and, and as Quentin says here, is it runs in the blood. And her father had been mad. Everybody knew that. That was something that was not hidden or quiet. And so what she thinks of herself, a little bit, a little bit of her family history, a little bit of rumors, and a lot of bit of maybe what people want to think of her is all kind of coming together. But I mean, is this something that you believe? You know, like, do you see this as something that we should be reading into more than just gossip? Definitely not. You don't think I don't she... think that I don't think that Danny bathes in <laughs> tubs of virginal blood. But it, I, I thought it was interesting learning about it so far again in a chapter that is full of such interesting imagery. I thought that there was a reason for it. And I think I understand why this chapter is so beloved by folks, because I think especially compared to the one that we had before, the they both sort of stand out from the the kinds of things that we've been reading at least in chapters with characters' names on top of it, with the way that the Reaver felt like this, like you said, this almost a movie that plays out. The swashbuckling begins at the very beginning, and it almost, it, it, it transforms, but it feels like we're in the same state of mind with Victorion, where he was drunk, literally in some cases, and drunk with blood fury in some cases, and drunk with his anger throughout being haunted by the pain in his bloodied fist. But in this Quentin Martell chapter, we're with a company of sellswords that when we compare them to the company of sellswords we read just in the last chapter, I feel like they're a slightly modeled down version, just as cool. I think a lot of the characters are awesome, but do you, do you get that as well? The Walmart version? Maybe. I don't know if it's the Walmart version, <laughs> just kind of, they're just all over the place. They yeah. kind of remind me of his cloak, of the Tattered Prince's cloak, especially compared to the age of the Golden Company. You know, being only 30 years old and having been formed by a person who spent time learning from other companies with sellswords, I thought it was interesting that George represented it in this way. And judging from the characters he introduced that had such lofty 
details. I don't know how much time we're going to spend getting to know them in the future. Maybe they'll have a huge part. I don't know. I really, really liked you mentioned the Tattered Prince backstory a little bit and all the different companies he'd spent time with. Again, Quentin doesn't know if any of this is true because it's a rumor, which I feel like this entire chapter is filled with so many of them. But the story goes that he was chosen to be the new prince of Pentos and he didn't want to. So he ran away and then he joined, uh, I can't remember all the different sellsword company groups that he was with off the top of my head, but this happened before he ended up forming the Windblown. And I just thought that that was so cool that he just didn't want to do what he was supposed to do with this family. So he said, see you later and never went back and kind of built this life based off of mercenaries. I don't know. I thought it was really, really cool. Here's the passage from the book. This is after he'd been offered the supposed role as the Prince of Printos. It says, instead, he buckled on a sword, mounted his favorite horse and fled to the disputed lands never to return. He fled to a place called the disputed lands. How swaggy you know? is that? <laughs> yeah. And he comes back and he's like, all right, I'm going to join the second sons, the Iron Shield, the Maiden's Men. It's not working. These five brothers in arms and I are going to start our own company. The Windblown. And he's the only the one name of it. who survived. And I love the moment later in the chapter when he's standing and speaking to his men and he can be heard across their entire company. He's telling them their plans and he's 60 and his back is straight and they still can't really get a clear look at him it is really cool and it's it's interesting to kind of have this grandeur and history i mean 30 years isn't like a long history but it's long enough to have all of that juxtaposed with quentin basically trying to get out of there not actively but kind of talking a lot about what he's going to do after and how this is very much like a passing thing for him when we hear about not only the tattered prince but these other people with really cool names the girl general little pigeon the girl general who rode about on a white horse I with a red mane and commanded a hundred strapping slave soldiers that she had bred and trained herself all of them young lean rippling with muscle and naked but for breech clout yellow cloaks and long bronze shields with erotic inlays their mistress could not have been more than 16 and fancied herself young Kai's own Daenerys Targaryen. Can, I mean, <laughs> first of all, next year's Halloween costume. The girl general with <laughs> yeah. all of your thralls or slaves. Everyone will be like, who's that? <laughs> Trust They're me. They're strapped and they have erotic inlaid shields. So cool. So cool. I don't know if you felt the same way. I might have been looking into it way too much. But during the descriptions of a lot of these characters, I, I was just like, is this a, a very interesting way for George to write in people that he knows and likes? <laughs> and, like they're getting these cool little side. This is the whale who pisses on himself constantly. He has tons of cash and he doesn't want for anything. He can't and stand he up some, on his own. He can't stand up on his own. He's got some pretty twisted habits. And uh, he's still very well respected in the walls of Young Kai. Stilt walkers and little pigeons. Do you think he wrote his friends into it? If I was an author, that's 100% what I would do. Or or I would like write some swaggy character like the girl general and send a note to my friend and be like, this one's for you. Shout out. The little pigeon was the one who had the stilt walkers. He chose his slaves very carefully where he would breed tall slaves with other tall slaves because he liked tall and imposing people to march for him. All of it just kind of feels like a masquerade, you know, or like some, perf- reading it like this, it just feels like some performance, 
you know, instead of like an actual real army. It is such a mess. And it's so interesting. Especially through the eyes of Quentin Martell because he Mm -hmm. sees it for what it is. Yeah. But also we could all see it for what it is, especially after he describes what actually happened when the fighting did break out in Astapor, where the windblown and the other hired sword companies were basically the only ones that were able to fight in any kind of order because the the leaders of all the Yunkish forces were between different tiers of class in the city and all of these rich men fancied themselves a kind of war leader and would purchase and just like Little Pigeon did, sort of craft their own tiny army. And of course, there's no leadership that is congruent between all of those forces. And I just thought, George R. R. Martin, you're such a clever man in the the different webs of the world that you're telling through this story, all while maybe talking about people that you know while you do it. And it was just kind of fascinating to me. Totally. And it's Quentin's first battle, really, right? The first time he's in some sort of real combat, this is the kind of combat that it is. It just adds to like the stress of the situation. That's why I asked about the windblown earlier compared to the Golden Company, because I I feel like maybe all of this is being pointed in in a direction that feels kind of masquerading, where it's like this fight here doesn't really matter because it's already what Daenerys left behind. We've been told about the leaders of Astapor that have been risen, how many Cleon the Greats that we've had. It's not the real thing. Right. Right. Like, kind of like Quentin. I right? was going to say, we can <laughs> we can dismiss this whole storyline as not being the real thing. But I think there's some important lessons in here, though. I mean, what would you say? And I, I'm very much looking forward to getting to the end of Quentin's storyline because I want to take it's like... It's so dark. I, <sighs> I, it is. And I want to take a very hard look and have like a real discussion about his impact and why it matters and kind of what his storyline means, if for no other reason than for a selfish reason for myself to kind of work it out. But for now, where we're at, kind of stumbling around in this battle as he's kind of this classic fairy tale character, I think is how a lot of people describe him. And and I think that the wind blown is a very good chapter title because it not only represents this group that he's fighting with but i feel like it also says a lot about who he is because i just feel like he's kind of doing whatever he thinks he's supposed to do and he's not really acting on his own impulses but kind of doing based on what he needs to be doing from his father and who he's with and and all these kinds of things and even at the very end of the chapter when the tattered prince sends him to daenerys basically which is what he was trying to do anyway, which is kind of interesting. I just feel like it's all kind of very him blowing in the wind. You know what I mean? And so yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you. That was George R. R. Martin. But all, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I don't know. It's it's interesting. And so we're we're kind of in this middle ground. And well, we can probably talk about this with this next next chapter of his. But we're in a weird spot with him right now, I think. And I, I don't remember what I thought. The first time I read this, because I don't think I paid attention, <laughs> <laughs> if I'm being honest. <laughs> so I don't I don't know what you you know, how you kind of felt being at this point in his storyline. But I think that like a lot of the trappings around this chapter are really cool. But I made a promise at the beginning of this episode that I wasn't going to complain about it the whole time. So I'm done after this. But that his storyline is tough to deal with. It doesn't sound like you're complaining that much, though. Sounds like you had a lot of fun with it. I think that was maybe the point of this chapter. Kind of like how the the Reaver is fun, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. With what we know of his sister and of his father and the kind of intellect that they have and the kind of 
reputation and the kind of weight that Doran holds in this whole equation, the Westerosi knot, everything that's happening, whether or not they have actual power, the idea is still there. Quinn was put in this position a long time ago. Mm-hmm. He was sent here with friends, and one of them is kind of bossing him around. And when things go south, I love that quote when the battle was started, when he was thinking back to the fight in Astapor. Stay close to the Ark, whatever happens. Remember, you're the only one of us who can get the girl. It reads kind of cheesy compared to the rest of George R. R. Martin's. Yeah. <laughs> we could just call it battle text, if you will. No, I totally or... get that. And I think it's done on purpose. And I think it's kind of like I was saying, he's just very much a fairy tale character in a way that a lot of other characters aren't. And so there's kind of cheesiness in everything he does. I mean, his name is mm-hmm. Frog. His name you know? is Frog because <laughs> so. he hops right to attention. Yes, sir. <laughs> it's, and I think that that makes his storyline even more tragic because I'm taking, I'm, I was starting down a, a thread and I decided to t- stop <laughs> saying what I was going to say because I was those guys very much in the last chapter that we were reading of his kind of thinking about how if Danny was going to like him and he was so excited to meet her. And some of those things were dampened a little bit with the different rumors that he had going on. But yeah, it very now much, he's full on nervous. Yeah, now he's nervous and his hands are probably all sweaty and which is kind of fun to see that dropped in the middle of all of this. I had a lot of fun with it, but I really liked how savage it was juxtaposed with the realities in Astapor when the fighting did take place. Mm-hmm. And he went along with the rest of his men at arms, his brothers that he's pledged a year of servitude. What's left of the Astapori send out a specter of Cleon the Great, and as he's cut through, maggots spill out. He was their last-ditch effort for their new, not-quite-as-legit-as-Daenerys-is-unsullied, to fight with some kind of fire against this host. And after he was cut down, they dropped their spears and ran like well-trained unsullied don't do Mm -hmm. and you can imagine what happened next it says frog had done his part and the slaughter that followed and i thought how it must feel for quentin martell to be complicit in that slaughter green boys screaming for their mothers he thought but he'd killed them all the same by the time he'd left the field his sword was running red with blood and his arm was so tired he could hardly lift it this was a victory that he didn't really earn these were lives he didn't deserve to end and it was blood he didn't deserve to spill, but yet he's in the same position, sort of poetically, with the rest of his storyline. Yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What's going on here? Do you see it? It's just, it's yes. just butchery. Yes. And almost for no reason. Yeah. And they're just trying to get to Daenerys. They're just trying to get to Danny, and they're just trying to kind of push their way through. But that whole Cleon scene with the grave worms coming out is something else. Yeah, it was dark. And this is where the sickness that plagues the rest of this book really begins and spills out from here. And you can imagine figuratively what this place must look like from overhead, not the actual bodies and destruction and smoke coming from God knows what's being burnt, but also just just the ideas of this horrible place and all of these desperate people that were marshaled there by other desperate people whose plans have since fallen through. Again, 
all because of the will of the Dragon Queen. Mm -hmm. It's so fascinating. It's making me think of how guilty Quentin starts to kind of feel about the fact that he's going to have to betray the Windblown after they've seen all of this together, kind of dealt all of this together, and they've been together for, it seems like, a little bit of time. And he is kind of dealing with this idea that he can't fight in an army against the person he's supposed to be trying to marry and yeah, how much he's been through and how much he's, he's seen. And he just fought his first battle and it was very intense and kind of dealing with all of that as he progresses forward and starts to move towards Daenerys, I thought was also kind of an interesting level to put on top of everything that we're seeing with what's happening in Astropor. Mm -hmm. It's like the horror is giving him pause, but the momentum of already being carried this far is just taking him toward it at any cost. Mm -hmm. And I know that he didn't want to face what they were going to have to face if they were to actually leave and head closer to their destination. But like he says at the end of the chapter, he's like, man, the gods are mad. Or what does he say? Something that's just, it says, Quentin Martell almost laughed aloud. The gods are mad. So uh, I guess I was just basically trying to get to, to that. The fact that it's like all happening for him. You know what I mean? He mm -hmm. doesn't even have to do that hard thing. So, duh, he's definitely going to go in that direction. Just like facing Daenerys, he dreaded facing the Tattered Prince. And at this point, all the Dornishmen are nervous. It says all they could do is gather up the big man and report as ordered. Admit to nothing and be prepared to fight. <laughs> Quentin told his friends. George R. R. Martin wrote, Quentin told his friends. It's like, Doesn't oh, it sound like they're going to the principal's cold. office? Yeah. <laughs> A little bit. Like, don't say anything. It's cold, though. For George to just put Quentin told his friends, like with the audacity after everything that's brought them this far, and for him to be so unsure about all of his decisions, and for him to be so unsure about why they're there, there's a italicized bit just before it, and it says, what could this be? But he you know, is willing enough to say, admit to nothing and be prepared to fight. Quentin told his friends. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say frog. It says Quentin told his friends. Yeah. I feel so bad. And I'm glad that it didn't go south. It didn't. It went 100% the opposite of south. Exactly. It's it went so, very north. It's east. so funny because as you're reading this, I'm like, does he, does the, does the prince know what Quentin is trying to do? Because he's helping him so much. And he's basically kind of pushing him along after this whole chapter of wait, 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 wait. And now it's like, all right, here you go. So basically what ends up happening is they all get into the tent and it's a bunch of Westerosi men who are there all together. Um, and the plan and idea is that they're supposed to get caught by Danny's patrols and kind of get into her group and get taken in and what's the word? And infiltrate basically what Daenerys is trying to do and kind of spy on everything. What did you think about his plan with the the evidence to their case being all of these different reasons to mistrust and want to defect from the windblown. That sounds a lot like uh, John Connington's the whole same kind of like leaving on terms that couldn't be really disputed and kind of getting taken out of his group to go undercover and basically do the same, which I thought was interesting. Now, all of us Westerosi guys, we stick together and we want to we want to join up with another westerosi native that's why we came all the way out here to marine yeah i mean i don't know i i don't know what i think about the plan i think it's fine <laughs> i mean i think he has that, pretty like, good reasons i mean what did you think i feel like he definitely knows everything and he's very smart do you yeah that's what that's the read that i wasn't 100 percent sure on both of these chapters that we're talking about today speak so much of the the, the ultimate prize versus the different kinds of fruit and the beginning of this chapter 
it's Beans who says life is sweeter than gold. But I think something that sets the wind blown apart from a group of guys like the Golden Company is that their leader has been so historically pragmatic about his decisions and they haven't quite served to scale up his organization, to scale up the kind of men that he keeps around him to be able to really hold the rest of his organization accountable for scaling up and becoming more pristine, making more money, having a better reputation. But I also think it's what has helped him stay alive and keep this sort of ragtag group of guys. Ragtag in a more ragtag sense than we were describing the Golden Company. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like ragtag in the true sense together. And I think that maybe he's using those same tactics here to think of the sweet taste of life over gold just in case things do go south in the end with what's happening in Marine. So maybe if he puts these Westerosi guys closer on the case, as we see later on in Dance with Dragons, he'll have a better connection with what's happening regarding Daenerys, whether he wants to fall on the good side or the bad side. I think he's hedging his bets in a bunch of different ways that other people aren't. Some fighting specifically against her with Young Kai, you know, and some like the Golden Company trying their hand at a more roundabout version. I mean, I think that that's a smart thing to do in this situation when you like don't necessarily completely understand what she's capable of yet. And he's hearing the same rumors. And he's hearing the same rumors. So I feel like that's I feel like it's smart to kind of hedge your bets. It's kind of as beautiful as as Quentin's story. He's gonna arrive and be like, Aha, I'm from Dorn. Marry me. This is how it works, right? Yeah. I like it though. <laughs> George's interchangeable frogs and Quentin's depending on who he's speaking to. The Valerian Arak adding a little bit more mystery onto things later if they shake out. Probably not as important as the Araks on the western side of the world, judging by what's happening. But again, maybe it's just figurative like the rest of this chapter is where it's really cool to look at. And uh, we get more playful descriptions of things in this chapter. We've got more playful characters surrounding Quentin. And they're going through some pretty hard stuff. Post Astapor, we've got the the tattered prince telling everyone to fight in a certain way in order to move the hosts of people that are refugees from Astapor, either toward Danny or not. But either way, don't get in within steel distance because we you're going to catch the bloody flux. So make sure that you keep you know five yards away at most if you're going to murder these people if you need to. Yeah, bows and arrows might be a good choice. All the while, Quentin's like, yeah, I think that this will get us closer to the girl. I'll get the girl. Mm-hmm. Feels like <laughs> such a small thing compared to these like major world problems. World problems and world-class assholes. There's some supremely horrible men filling these camps. Big time. You, ha- I mean, you have to kind of be to hang with these crowds is like as silly and larger than life as a lot of these people are it takes a special kind of guy or a special kind of person it'd be fun if we could give this chapter um just a a play-by-play paragraph by paragraph read through where we talked about our favorite parts or our favorite characters that may or may not come back into the story and and maybe just theorized or explored out loud what their early life was like and what it might be if they ever make it through this whole mess. But I just don't know if we have enough time for that. Our own segment would be There's some pretty good 45 ones. 45 minutes long. There's a guy called Sir Lucifer. He's seething about a slave girl Kago took from him. You know, normal stuff that 
normal people worry about? There's people casually named Lord Wobble Cheeks and the Beastmaster. <laughs> but <laughs> but I do want to say <laughs> this chapter ends with all of this coming together, Quentin and company being told what to do. They're being told they have to leave immediately and that they have no choice. And Quentin gets slapped across the back and told, so this is Sweet Frog, a dragon hunt. Da, 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 da. And they're off. Will da, da, our da, heroes da. be successful? Only time will tell. What happens when you face the the real furious intensity of the actual dragon? Yeah. I think it depends on how you get there. <laughs> <laughs> Ready to have a raven deliver Westeros right to your door? Announcing the official Game of Thrones box, a premium subscription box for the ultimate Game of Thrones fan. I'm ready for the Raven to deliver Westeros right to my door. Each box will come packed with 100% exclusive fun and functional items worth over $120 that will never be available anywhere else. This is the first ever Game of Thrones box, and the theme for this first ever Game of Thrones box is the Noble Houses of Westeros which will feature a special item from all of your favorite houses. And today we have two sneak peek items to share with you. First is Robert Baratheon's drinking horn from House Baratheon. And the horn comes mm-hmm. with a strap and a holder so you're ready for any feast, or which is so cool. any <laughs> other occasion that you think this would be appropriate, which personally I think is all most occasions. <laughs> the next item is a mini desktop planter from House Tyrell. The planter is based off of their house motto, Growing Strong, and will bring a little high garden to your office or desk. The Game of Thrones box is a quarterly subscription, so you will get a new box every season. But these boxes are produced in limited quantities and will sell out. So hurry, go to www.culturefly.com and pre-order the first box today. That's www.culturefly.com, offer code OWNS. O-W-N-S, for 10% off your first box today. Support for today's show comes from War Dragons, a mobile real-time strategy game where players directly control dragons to attack enemy bases. With over 150 different dragons to collect, each one possessing different attack styles, abilities, and classes, players can work to create a powerful army and dominate the battlefield. Plus, you can join or create guilds to launch co-op attacks and co-op defense. This is a perfect opportunity for all of you listening to try your hand at experiencing what it's like to befriend potentially 150 different dragons. And it only makes the experience more fun when you're able to make new friends and share the experience with others. So we encourage you as well to join or create a guild when you check it out. Best of all, there's a new endgame feature called Atlas that just launched, and Atlas is a new, fully 3D, persistent world where players can forge alliances with other teams and conquer land from those they deem enemies. Work with your teammates to build up dragon-led armies, fight for new land, and secure lucrative rewards, all while bolstering strongholds to strengthen your positions. To join in on the fun, just go to wardragons.com slash owns, that's O-W-N-S, via your phone or tablet device to download the game. That's wardragons.com slash owns on your phone or tablet. Quentin, we're done with you for a little while. Another... Poor soul is headed east to meet Daenerys. <laughs> Another rando is on his way. This guy is the guy. Vic, as we call him in the streets. Victorian <laughs> Greyjoy. The Reaver. 
The Reaver. This chapter, I know we've already said, Victorion. half my notes are Victorion is wild in all caps. The other half of my notes in all cap is, is Euron for real. The whole time I was reading this chapter, all I can think about was, do you remember at the beginning of this last season when we were all, we were all, anybody who says they weren't is lying to themselves. We were all in love with Euron for 30 seconds and by, and maybe more like 30 minutes. Do you remember that? We all remember that. I remember when he, when he dropped down from one ship to shining ship. I remember that moment. Yes. Those all can be rolled into us being in love with Euron. Yes, and then you read yes. about him in this chapter and it's like, oh, <laughs> show Euron is a very, very small taste of what this guy is actually capable of and who he is. And no amount of eyeliner in the world can make show Euron as intense as he is in this chapter. And so it's just like this big reminder to me of like, wow. We can't like this is something that we can't really mess around with. No, you can't mess around with it. And George does not mess around when he's writing this. Mm-mm. I mean, it, this is the way the chapter begins. The drums were pounding. The drums were pounding out a battle beat as the iron victory swept forward, her ram cutting through the choppy green waters. The smaller ship ahead was turning or slapping at the sea. Roses streamed upon her banners, fore and aft, a white rose upon a red that word is such one is that what it is yeah okay a white rose it's some like (laughs) bay area rich girl stuff (laughs) 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 i don't know how to say these words i don't know how to say it either i just made that all right (laughs) a such one i mean i did take ap lang but all right. That's neither here nor there. A white rose upon a red acetuan, atop her mast, a golden one on a field as green as grass. The iron victory raked her side so hard that half the boarding party lost their feet. Oars snapped and splintered. Sweet music to the captain's ears. We have. Do you we, want to read the rest? Say, of- we have to keep going. Yeah. He vaulted over the gunwale, landing on the deck below with his golden cloak billowing behind him. The white roses drew back as men always did at the sight of Victorion Greyjoy, armed and armored, his face hidden behind his kraken helm. (laughs) They were clutching swords and spears and axes, but nine of every ten wore no armor, and the tenth had only a shirt of sewn scales. These are no iron men, Victorion thought. They still fear drowning. Get him, one man (laughs) shouted. He's alone. Let's just read the whole chapter. (laughs) Come, he roared back. Come kill me. Kill me if you can. (laughs) Man. So, something that I really loved about this chapter is Victorion in the beginning of this chapter is insane. And yeah, he's wild. It comes pretty. (laughs) There's another um, line that's coming up pretty quickly when he reaches uh, Sir Talbot. Talbert Sari and Sir Sir Talbot says, "Who are you, Kraken?" And he says, "Your death." Victorion pulled towards him, and then Sari leapt to meet him, and they kind of just like begin in this big battle. There is so much insanity with him in this chapter, and then to have him juxtapose with Euron at the second half of the chapter, and not cowering before him because I don't think that's necessarily the right way to describe him, but his thoughts are just consumed with how much he doesn't like him, yet he still kind of answers to his every beck and call. So to kind of see their relationship with the two of them and their craziness that they're both capable of made this chapter very interesting. Yeah, that is a really cool thing. To go from the heights of fury to being being safe, but still so much underfoot. Yeah, I thought it kind of 
made for an interesting look at the Greyjoys. And their relationship and the constant abuse that Euron Greyjoy put over specifically Victarion. And I think taking advantage of the kind of mind that he has clearly while taking advantage of the kind of power that he has in the situation, the Iron Fleet doing a lot of the dirty work in this chapter. And we find out as the battle runs a little more shallow that they've entered the waters headed directly for the reach. And it's time for plundering season to begin again as the Lords of Westeros are distracted with their own dealings. And as the people, as the rest of the Iron Islands are distracted almost, you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, this is this follows the King's move. This follows Dampere's decision to lament their choice for the new king, the new one who sits upon the sea stone chair with his awesome crown. And Asha has fled. She made it out by the skin of her teeth. Blackheart was caught. How about the stuff that happened to him in this chapter? That stuff is no joke. And Victorian's wearing his cloak as they're celebrating toward the end. I just got caught up in the majesty at the beginning. I heard some music in my head and I kept going and I kept going. He's spinning and slamming his axe around me. Obviously, this was uh, this is where it is, you know, mm-hmm. like this is. This is the Victorian. This is like, this is, this is it. He says, and I apologize in advance, but not really that we're going to read half this chapter. He says, the drowned god had not shaped Victorian Greyjoy to fight with his words at King's Moots, nor struggle against putative sneaking foes in endless bogs. This was why he had been put on earth, to stand steel clad with an axe red and dripping in his hand, dealing death with every blow. And it's good to meet a character like this. Victor- in the series. Yeah, he's an in- he's kind of an interesting guy. I mean, I feel like jury's still out on how I feel about him. But as you were saying, you could definitely hear the music swelling as they're all dancing and fighting and battling each other here. I just like that he plays the game in a different way. Mm-hmm. He's out here. We out here. carnage. And I just want to read the beginning <laughs> of your quote from before when Sir Talbert Sari and Vic lock eyes from across the ship. He yells, you of the rose, be you the Lord of South Shield? The other raised his visor to show a beardless face. His son and heir, Sir Talbot Sari, and who are you cracking? Obviously, and he, he rushes to him and, and he jumps and they start fighting. Man. This is like fun at this point. When, when he swings his axe at Vic and it slams into soft pine. I just felt like George was compacting so many different beats of the stories that he's writing across all of these chapters and pages, but he condensed it into these small battles that Victorian had with these foes, sort of like he does in the chapters with Cersei. But and I say Cersei because his italics reminded me a lot of hers and really a lot of Tyrion's, I guess. When I, I guess everyone's really the same when you think of it. No, but <laughs> I think the- I think that the Cersei definition is or uh comparison is actually pretty good because like cersei is maybe not on the same level victorian is running a certain narrative through her head and his actions or through his head and his actions are a little bit different so like he's resenting euron at every turn and kind of plotting against him while also completely submissing to what he wants and cersei mm-hmm. kind of does that sort of in a little bit of a sense of like has this running dialogue of hating everybody and and trying to undermine everybody but also outwardly sometimes not all the time kind of plays to whatever role she's supposed to be playing to so that's you not said an that awful so comparison. much better than i did <laughs> i'm just stealing your own idea <laughs> i just 
saying I what you're his, trying to say. I loved reading his while he was fighting, though. Not walking through a courtyard or riding in a litter, being opposite of a game of Cybass and thinking about your dark history, thinking about your father, thinking about what he did to you or whether or not your brother still trusts you, stuff like that, or whether or not people think that you're still the Kingslayer, will they ever know the truth? He was thinking things about his victory and he was thinking things about how the king's moot went mm-hmm. you know what i mean yeah and, and he's, he's the thinking, whole time he's fighting and killing people i think it's so interesting and because like if i was in a battle what would i be thinking about and he's also thinking about like how he's so much better than everybody else and how much he rocks which i also thought was really fun funny yeah he's definitely one of the most rock and roll characters from the series <laughs> even though he's a total bad guy when you really think about it oh, he's also sure. a total just He's a wild dude. He's too wild, some may say. He's too wild. He's got a friend named Newt the Barber. What I really liked was the highest compliment he could give is when Talbert Sari, he kind of, he defeats him and he must have died in battle. He thinks that he was almost ironborn. I feel like that's like mm-hmm. the biggest compliment he could give to anyone is that somebody was, was almost ironborn, which I thought was cool. He's like... He was different. Yeah, he was a different kind of guy. But he, I mean, he did give him, he did hurt him and gave him yeah. this wound that kind of festers throughout this chapter. Um, and we see- It becomes a come, real problem. And it becomes a real problem, which I feel like is hinted at pretty heavily with how much it's featured in this chapter. So at least it was a worthy foe. It was so clever how George R. R. Martin did it, where he, Victorian meets a foe that is in armor. And of course, they're in the water. And there's a fear of drowning. That's why he makes these comments about they're scared to meet the drowned god, apparently. But he's impressed because this young guy with no beard is wearing this armor and he leaps to meet him and he's fighting with all of his courage and he realizes, oh, this guy's quick. I'm going to have to put something into this. And during this fight, as they chip down each other's defenses, George R. R. Martin chipping down parts of a story in such a small, compacted conflict this young guy that represents the Rose in this situation, supposedly the good guys, and we have the Reaver named in the chapter, supposedly representing the bad. I'm not sure. It's for you to decide. But in the end, Victorion knocks his sword away, so perhaps knocking away the power that he has that is good, and pushes him into the water, supposedly to drown. So jury's out on whether or not he's going to have some kind of comeback. That's kind of neat. Maybe George R. R. Martin will do that because he seems to like this guy. Since we didn't actually see him die. Right. But I just thought it was interesting that this guy and the good that he represented to this character that's ambiguously bad, just like I'm sure Sari's a pretty horrible person if we like really looked at it, is the one who put this non-debilitating wound but festers without his attention and I guess taking serious of how serious it could be is mm-hmm. it was dealt by this guy in this way but he it's just the way that he caught it and and what happens because of it and the nature of who dealt it and why it was dealt there's a lot of do you know what i'm saying like there's, there's a lot of imagery there mm-hmm. well and kind of how throughout the rest of this chapter how it's kind of taken care of and his his workings with the dusky woman as she kind of tries to help him out a little bit and how it's I feel like it's mentioned quite a few times in this chapter as he's then at the victory party and with Euron and it's always kind of like throbbing. Yeah. In his mind and, and at the forefront of what's going on. Dealt by this guy mm-hmm. 
who, you know, was a true Gryffindor in his own sense. Exactly. All around the sea was full of ships. Some were burning, some were sinking, some had been smashed to splinters. Between the hulls, the water was thick as stew, full of corpses, broken oars, and men clinging to the wreckage. In the distance, half a dozen Southern longships were racing back toward the Mander. Let them go, Victorian thought. Let them tell the tale. Once a man had turned his tail and run from battle, he ceased to be a man. And Victorian mentions that Sari could have been a worthy captive, but they cannot find him. He must have drowned. He must have drowned. He probably won't ever come back later. Never. We we definitely didn't see him die, so he's definitely not coming back. Did you catch how vicious he was to those who begged for mercy before inevitably killing them? Well, it's just like very, I felt like moments like that, Victorian just has no patience for people who aren't men, you know what I mean? Or people who aren't up to his kind of standard as what they should do in in while fighting kind of with their pride and honor and so to have people who are acting that way i feel like is like the last thing he could ever it's like the he can he can never have respect for people like that he just has no patience for a lack of strength mm-hmm. yet he behaves toward Euron, you know yeah in a very particular way yeah, which is his whole and, and a lot of moments of his internal dialogue through this battle are just about, as you were saying, he can't, you know, people who run away from battle aren't men. So he's got a lot of issues. He's very insecure. Yeah, well, very obviously very insecure. Yeah, I just think it's interesting to have him in this big battle and then also spending time with Euron and, and see how much Euron basically is able to manipulate him and kind of control the narrative when it comes from everything to this woman that he's with and him remembering the first woman that Euron ever gifted him and how Euron basically turns the table with awarding some of Euron's men or excuse me some of Victorion's men with lands basically so that or with titles so that Victorion can't have them or use them and then Euron asks him to do this thing for him to go chase after Daenerys. It's just, it's it's kind of crazy to see how much he can let his brother play him like that while also just having play this, him and everyone. Yeah, and everyone while also having this very deep-rooted hatred towards him. And, and he spends a lot of the second half of the chapter thinking about what he and what Dampere are going to do to get Euron out of power and kind of how how they talked about I thought this was really interesting she picked on it up on it as well how much they kind of blame the magic that made Euron king and wizards and his crew that kind of let this happen when in reality the politics of the situation played out the way that anybody would have seen coming from a million miles away and now they just kind of like want to blame these on some otherworldly things so that they can maybe have some more control over it. I don't know. It's just, it's, he's got all these ideas in his head about how he can defeat Euron. And then he too, sort of is, is handed this opportunity on a silver platter to take away what Euron wants most for himself. Instead of a trencher of bread, mm-hmm. actually a silver platter. Yeah. Yeah. I love that quote describing their victory size. It was just like, George R. R. Martin, you really liked writing this chapter a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. And I don't blame him. What you're talking about is is my favorite part of their dynamic. It's a dark one. And it's so beautiful how it's rooted so deeply 
and family, not only the horrible things that Euron has done to Victarion. If you're listening, you probably know that he raped Victarion's wife and it drove him into a state of of insufferable jealousy and he brutally murdered his wife directly following that. So these guys suck and they're super shitty to everyone. They're wildly misogynistic. And no matter the accolades that Euron piles up to serve as evidence for his own greatness, Victarion ignores what he's standing on, which is the rubble of the victory that he led, the Iron Fleet who broke the forces of these men fighting for the Rose, and which ultimately granted them this passage and this victory where Euron was able to sit atop the Lord's table and have his way with his bastard daughter while the man's wife and children were naked serving his men in this hall of... If, if you thought that Craster's Keep was rough in the TV show... I know. I mean, this is just where it is, right? I know. This is this is the pirate plunder. This is the the other side of madness where we liked it when it was on the ship and he was throwing his axe around and barking at people. It was in a How battle. How about the part where he just yells, well struck or something at a guy? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like so proud. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and that's fun. But on the other side of it, you know, you couldn't protect your people. You couldn't protect your women. And mm-hmm. so now they're ours. It's the prize of the whole thing, which I just... It now there are slaves, yeah. or now there are thralls, or now there are salt wives. Victarians looked on as a progressive in this scenario because he wants to go by the old ways, which are, oh, well, if you capture these people, they're your thralls, right? Or your salt wife. You need to pick one of the two. We're not slavers, are we? Mm-hmm. But I don't know. We're trying new things, Euron says. So in that, we need more money to try these new things. So why not carry these valuable pieces of offerings to the east with us and he just wants to take it to the next level like just Every go time. yeah just go a little <laughs> bit harder in and a little bit more terrifying and a little bit to the next level all of this is happening while lord hewitt is sitting in his normal dinner spot where he always sits tied to his chair dressed in his nicest clothes with a radish shoved in his mouth so he can't say anything as it's all just like this whole scene is kind of playing out in this dinner hall. It's not happening to someone that we can completely relate to. Cause this guy's probably just based on the society that he lives in done horrible things that would to the reader, not grant him a lot of sympathy, I guess. Mm-hmm. But obviously in the situation, he's being overshadowed by such malice that we can't help, but just look away. Yeah. And we're being shown these dynamics between two brothers that have, got a very negative relationship one who takes advantage of the other in such horribly abusive ways through characters that don't really again deserve a lot of that sympathy and i just think it's interesting how we see such horrific stuff and then we see such casual slave mastering of victorian's dusky woman and it's all part of an equation where we're learning a lesson that is so much smaller than how it seems. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're being, we're, we feel bad for these bad guys. We feel bad for him because the person that's bad to him is worse. Right. Well, that's totally George R. R. Martin's way. Yeah. And no one is worse than Yarn Greyjoy. I am the storm. 
Yeah, this whole this whole scene just kind of playing out in the in the hall. The king's move come again. It's fun to read because it's just so much larger than life. And the whole time Victoriano is just stewing in his seat. The whole time. He's so mad. He's so mad the whole entire time. Just I feel like every other line is just him in his head saying things like He shames you as he once shamed yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. And there's no wine so sweet as the wine taken from a foe. One day I should drink your wine, Crow's Eye, and take from you all that you hold dear. Basically, at this after party, Euron names one of Victorian's men as a lord. I feel like that's pretty smart of Euron to do that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And even even Victorian kind of figures that out, which I think is pretty good for a guy like him who, as great as he is on the battlefield, I don't know if he's necessarily like a great strategist very much, but super smart move just to kind of again continue to get Victorion under his under his hand and I think that was a good way to do it yeah he was struggling with these ideas I guess ever since the King's move because he understood that it couldn't be won with turnips obviously it didn't work and there's also the responsibility of Euron though to follow up with what he's promised and that's what happens again in this chapter when he speaks of dragons, they question him. They're like, all right, but when? In one year, five years? Mm-hmm. That's why I mentioned in our discussion of the Quentin chapter that there was there was these ideas of the great plan versus the fruit and how those in charge were really charged with the responsibility to make that clear to those following them. And then they would follow them enough for that realization to happen. I thought in the conversation between Victorian and Euron, there was whispers of that in a couple of direct references, but he was thinking about it really from the beginning of the chapter because he's been thinking about it ever since his brother won the crown and he and his other brother want Euron to leave. They want him to go back, go do those impressive things if you really want to dance and sing and tell everyone that that's the reason why we should all follow you, fine. But as far as the minutiae, you're not really handling it that well. And so he's thinking about the minutiae and then he's literally following through with what Euron is standing on top of as the reason to why he's so great. He's the one that's responsible for this victory. As you're saying, Euron literally says about all of these guys is, I would bring them dragons and they shout out for grapes. They're looking at what they can get the most of in the first place too. And that's what the Tattered Prince is afraid of as well. And it's the same thing that the Golden Company is struggling with. And that's why they have to tell everyone early about their whole plan because there's just questions when everything isn't clear and if there's an unprotected coastline that hasn't been that way in such a long time there's all these because of all this trouble so much is rife for spoiling why wouldn't we mm-hmm. and what they don't understand that Euron does understand that sets them apart from the rest of them is that well that's why it's there it's there because we're supposed to either go do that or go do the other thing and he's trying to do the other thing but not involve Victorian. I loved how he he goes against what he says publicly to make him look stupid in front of everyone and then later is like, oh, by the way, I do think that's a really bad idea. We're just going to send you the Iron Fleet. What do you think about that? Yeah. And he's doing the same exact thing that he did to Victorian just outside while they were celebrating and Victorian notices it the entire time. He's so mad. All these things that he's promising different people for political gain, for political purposes. Even Newt the Barber, who we're traveling with through the course of this chapter in the fray, 
also after when he's dealing with his injury and thinking about what happens next he's he's one of his right hand guys and his brother knows exactly what to do he just gives him a lordship and what does Newt say to him he's like well, when are you going to make me a lord he stands right up and basically joins the fray mm-hmm. even though Victorian knows all this is happening and he knows his brother is doing all that he still falls for it himself at the end oh yeah with the same kind of empty promises so what if it's empty he may be he may follow through with all that he's promising it's not about that euron's giving away what he needs to to get what he wants right it's all it's all a move while he's acting so mysterious right right so victorian basically falls for the same thing by the end of the chapter um as euron asks him to go bring Daenerys back and he promises him that he can have the sea stone chair once he takes the iron throne and that's basically everything Victorian could even want at this point just because he's so focused on kind of like we're saying like the rest of the ironborn that he's with he's just focused on what they've always known and kind of what's the immediate issue right in front of them and what can bring them the most gratification not the quickest but you know what I mean and so Victorian kind of completely like is ignoring this idea or not ignoring, but he's just quite, I think this is what you're saying, doesn't quite understand this grander plan that Euron is trying to accomplish that could bring them, it's the much longer game, could, could, but could bring them so much more if they kind of stuck it out. Basically, he says he's going to go, but then he's, Victorian kind of, his idea is that he's going to plan to steal Daenerys for himself and kind of get Euron back that way. And so he may not quite understand what Euron is trying to accomplish but he understands enough to let's see you stole my wife and despoiled her so I'll have yours the fairest woman in the world for me that's something that could hurt Euron and that's kind of all he's focused on instead of kind of some like the larger implications and it's really hard to turn down after they've all been complaining so much and he doesn't like what's happening back at home it's so hard to turn down just a, a the order from your captain all right go do just get away from me and do your own thing mm-hmm. and go out on the sea and maybe in a few weeks you'll come up with something else and maybe something else will happen. Just go. And so just like he gave Newt something that he wanted, really that's all. Victorian doesn't want gold or riches. You know, he just, he's just in his head. The guy's just in his head. He, he wants power away from Euron mm-hmm. and it's just consuming him basically. And so I wonder if Euron knows that. He probably does, right? I feel like he does. And that's why he he's really offering plays him this. It up. Really, really plays it all up. Just the, the pageantry of the, the celebrations and the way that he is. He's, he's naked, all except for his eye patch and that cloak. And he's got the girl in bed and she's sprawled out And naked. they're drinking shade of the evening. They're drinking shade of the evening. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I, I knocked over this... This this craft outside of Karth, and there was a couple warlocks on it, so we tortured them as long as we had to to get all of their secrets. I took their wizards, if they had a name, added them to my wizard list, maybe. You don't know if I have wizards. And now we drink their shade of the evening, because it makes us see crazy stuff, man. No drink some. big deal. <laughs> and you know what else I thought was crazy from this exchange a little bit? And I'm trying to find the exact line. And I can't find it exactly, but he makes some mention of when he was a boy, he dreamt he could fly. Oh, that's so cool. Which, that was at the beginning. Oh, is that at the beginning? Of it, Not of the chapter, but right of this conversation. Yeah, I yeah. just thought that that was such an interesting thing to drop in here as he's drinking things like Shade of the Evening. 
Um, <laughs> it, you know, what Bran is saying with Blood Raven, you know, I don't know if that's anything that's kind of playing into this year. Um, but it, I feel like, it what kind do you of, think? I just feel like it kind of adds to this like aura and mystery and intensity and madness to your on. And it's just Could like it be building, building. Misdirection like Fagon or like the sort of classical elements of maybe Quentin's maybe tale. but I feel like it's such a subtle drop in there that if it is misdirection it's pretty small but he would say that wouldn't he when the when he when his brother comes up the stairs and he's naked and he's just it, it, it's the behind the curtain of like you're the you're the friend of the really famous person you get to see just how just non-glitzy it is and he's just like yeah look at me yeah we drink shade of the evening up here it's like even in his even in his after hours he still is he's, too much <laughs> he's still you're on yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's still putting it on he's still too much no wonder why victorian hates him so much i mean there's a lot to hate there he's a he's a very this is these are really difficult chapters to to sum up i mean it's fun to talk about I could talk. I feel like I talk about this for hours, but I feel so limited by the amount of time that we can actually record this because there is just so much here, and there the subtle connections that they have with each other, and their connection being at the top of it. And if you worked their other brother into the case, he's not even there, and so it spiders out in so many directions, and so many different lives are caught up in this mess. And still, again, it's being ported toward Daenerys, but in both of their cases, she's more of a selfish tool than uh, a way to actually get what they want, which right. says a lot about them. Right. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out, how those meetings play out. I could do a Greyjoy book, though, for sure. I could do a, Grey, a Greyjoy book, too. And it's like, it's something that I, I've talked about before and that I kind of like deal with as I think about why I find the Greyjoy so much more fascinating than I do some of these other what people may see as like side plots. Not that this is a side plot at all, but I think that people think a lot about like Dorne or the Greyjoys as kind of these outside things. Um, I just think that their family dynamic and their true evil is just so fascinating. And it's not always easy to read. And I think that like especially the women in this chapter, it's like very difficult to imagine and think about kind of what they're going through. But I just feel like maybe, and maybe it's because they're basically pirates. So I'm into that, but there's just like a lot of really interesting stuff happening. It's like you said, we couldn't, we couldn't get to it and we've probably glossed over quite a few so much points, but there's so many characters and, these ch- this chapter was very long. <laughs> this chapter is so long. And it's very, I don't know if you felt this way, it's kind of hard to orient yourself in this chapter. Um, I like that though, you know? Yeah, so it's all it's all very interesting. That's one of the reasons I liked it. There, Some folks may read A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons and try to pull the main threads, the Tyrians, the Daenerys's. It's like, we all understand, yeah, yeah, yeah. It It's a very cool thing that so many people care about her and all these things are happening her direction on with it but for me it's not on with it i really i i enjoy the reasons that george makes his decisions and i feel like the more time we get in these two books specifically the more those reasons become more clear when they involve those characters that matter so much and chapters like these 
may fall to the wayside. They weren't adapted. This character wasn't even adapted. Quentin wasn't adapted at all. Mm-hmm. And his sister wasn't adapted. But it's just a whole other story when you read the Reaver and you're like, I don't care if this is not top priority. This is top priority for me. This is just, you know, one of the best parts of it to read. It's just beautifully written. Well, and I think that one of the great things about what we get to do as readers all together, all of us who are listening and kind of participating is understand why this maybe should be more of a priority and take a harder look at like, as we continue to progress and start to look back um, on everything, why we should be paying attention to the stuff that Euron and Quentin are doing and what Victorian is thinking about and how that actually does matter and actually does play into the end game. And I think that that's a useful exercise as we also think a lot about somebody like Daenerys and as they think a lot about someone like Daenerys. So can we promise each other we're going to revisit this in some way? Maybe not this chapter specific specifically, but at least the Greyjoy family dynamics. And we can talk about Absolutely. the Dornish family dynamics as well. well we so, really need to. So this is something, I don't know if this is something we talk we should talk about, but you and I occasionally will talk about what we're going to do when we finish this reading order. And if it happens before Winds of Winter is published, if it happens after Winds of Winter is published, if it happens in 10 years from now, who knows? But just kind of taking these broader themes and being able to talk about them on a very broad level because we are talking them about them right now very much in the detail. And so to be able to talk about Greyjoy family dynamics as like a whole entire topic, I think is something that would be very, very fun to do. So Also what Euron sees when he's staring out of this window, what he's thinking about while he's drinking Shave the Evening and he's had this kind of victory. Mm-hmm. So weird. So you ready to give your own? Well, that sounds fun. I'm excited <laughs> now. <laughs> oh, man, this is tough. I just want to talk about that stuff now. I know. Okay, yeah, I got mine for the windblown. Okay, go for it. My own for the windblown is pretty straightforward. The Tattered Prince is scheming. He's telling everyone their plan. Quentin Martell and his friends, mostly Quentin, are like, oh, my God, is this really happening? The Tatter Prince is going through all of the folks that he wants to send off on this mission. And he's giving them reasons why they should hate the windblown. And he's insulting them in different ways. And and they're pretty well thought out. Obviously, he's put a lot of work into the scheme, right? Mm Mm-hmm. He gets to this guy called Will of the Woods. He's like, blah, 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 da, 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 da. And he goes, Will of the Woods. Well, you're just filth. <laughs> I just. <laughs> <laughs> like, who is who is Will of the Woods, you know? Yep. That's good. He's probably an archer. Something about him just says archer to me. Mm-hmm. That's a pretty great own. Oh, yeah. I'm going to give my own <laughs> to something. Great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give my own to something that we've already talked about. So I'm going to give my own to the girl general because of. We already all know. I wonder who that is. Like, which one of George's friends just has the love of everyone? I know. And who's so I love fierce? It. Love it, love it. So own, own there. And for the Reaver, it's just, where do you begin? I definitely have two owns for this chapter. George R. R. Martin won, for sure, for the incredible state of mind that he's able to write of Euron Greyjoy, but also just uh, the, the flurry of things. How things are moving so much and the, the chaos in one's mind, he's able to uh, use use the phonetics of his language in a way that uh, you would 
some I think like a like a cheesy poet would try to do in a text message to woo someone, but he does it in such a a brilliant way that it's just so right for Victorian and so right for the kind of dulled senses that even the brightest person would have in such a dangerous fight. Love it. I don't even think that that was my own. I was just <laughs> Sound, thought of that. it sounded like <laughs> it was a good thought. <laughs> was it my turn? Yeah. What did you decide? <laughs> My first own is how Victorian wants banners of everyone he had defeated oh, that day. Yes. And he says, so when we grow old and feeble, or so when he grew old and feeble, he could remember all the foes he had slain when he was young and strong. Oh, I took that down as well. That is such a cool. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It's so dark. It is it's so, so dark. dark. He's such a bad dude. And I just imagine him like sitting kind of like his father, like in front of a fireplace in a very cold, damp room with just like banners strung along the wall, just what looks staring at them all day. He would have he would have Euron's head on the wall too. For sure. I just thought that was very intense. Oh. My own was gonna go to Oh wait, sure. You have two. My and then my second own is kind of along the same lines is when he they're thinking about like if the Tyrells are gonna come for them or whatever. And he thinks he would give half his teeth for a chance to try his axe against the Kingslayer or the Knight of Flowers. Damn. And I just had this image of Victorion going against Jamie or Loris and kind of what that would look like. Yeah. I'm excited for what we've already seen in the show, which is like this convergence of all the different storylines and all these oh, characters yeah. all coming together. And I just kind of had a moment reading that of like, wow, when we get to the end and again... The show is not the same as the books, and who knows if it's going to play out in any sort of way like that. But, I mean, one thing I think we can kind of count on is the fact that a lot of these different characters are going to come together, whether it's these guys or not. And I just, it got me very excited. That is so cool. Now I'm excited. <laughs> I wanted to give Our my own to, done. I guess it's to George R. Martin again, but um, just, just his sensibility of writing Victorian's relationship with the Dusky Woman I thought was was so brilliant how he he doesn't think of her as a complete person at all yet the way that they communicate it's like he's it's like that's his person when he goes down to the ship and he's complaining about it he just picks up where he left off in the conversation before and uh you know he's like speaking freely to her and yet her tongue's cut out and she just does his bidding and that's what works for him mm -hmm. and it just says a lot about the kind of person he is and the kind of situation, the horrible situation that she's in that she can't contest and what she has to go through. Uh, the Just the abusive dynamic there and how George R. R. Martin succinctly wrote a person that uh, and one, on one hand sort of depends on that release of his own thoughts and yet just it just isn't there at all. I thought it was crazy. I was like, this is some dark stuff. Yeah, their whole relationship was really dark and how he talks about her. And he's just down there getting drunk. And mad. He's mad. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's so mad. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we think. <laughs> oh, God. Those are our oh, own boy. owns and thoughts. You can't blame us. These chapters were crazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? They were. They were. You guys know. Everybody read. Everybody reads along all the time. We got some owns sent to us, though. Some of you were joining us in this darkness. We got some really great hole. owns. And I want to re read the first one that we got from Twitter. Which is from Rune Fair, who says, Reaver owned to Sir Talbert Sari for being a true Gryffindor. Oh, <laughs> okay. You know how that's, true, you that's got where it. I got it from. <laughs> it happens sometimes. It's well, you know how, like, sometimes, and I, 
this is something that actually like doesn't stress me out, but I get nervous about because I'm like, did I steal this idea from somebody's own and then I have to read it? So thank you for giving us this idea of a Gryffindor um, because I absolutely copied it earlier in this episode. But um, Rune Fayer on Twitter says, own to Sir, Sir Tarbit Sari for being a true Gryffindor. And this exact line, he says, and who are you, Kraken? Your death, Victorian bolds towards him. Sari leapt to meet him. And then windblown own to the rabbit for however he earned the name. <laughs> the Brienne of Tarth at Beauty Brienne on Twitter wrote to us, hello, she said, the last time we saw Aaron, he had a look that made children weep. Now he can sour wells and make women barren. So he gets an own. Also, giving an own to Vic for thinking it was smart to shag Euron's gift and for pouring one out in memory of his homies. Oh, yeah. That, that was, was so, so cool. <laughs> yeah. He yeah. pours him into the sea. I loved that. Or wherever he was out the window. I can't remember. He was Yeah, he went back on, on deck and drank half of what he had left and then poured the rest of it out. Mm-hmm. He, it was like, for the fallen. <laughs> I feel like that's something you would do. <laughs> she also gives an own, if, if I had had enough wine at that point, <laughs> she also gives an own to the Yunkish. Brand continues, the youngish we get to know get an own because they just sound amazing. Next up, we have from Twitter. <laughs> Twitter. Twitter. Next it's up. a very old program. <laughs> Twitter, the <Please>. Twitter, though. <laughs> Next up on Twitter, we have at Heathen King, who says, own for the windblown to this colorful cast of characters who are basically just George Martin's version of the villains in a Mad Max movie. And own for the reaver to the level of meta going on, having a character named the reader asking pointed questions of Euron, the villain. Ooh. Good own. And we have an email from Strat who writes, has anyone owned a chapter as much as Euron owned this one? We begin by hearing of daggers of Valyrian steel, Valyrian sphinxes and unicorn horns, among other goodies. Among other goodies shared at the King's Moot. Next, we learn Euron's chief local rival slash detractor, the Damp Hair, himself placed the crown on Euron's head. Finally, the King talks about flying and encouraging Victarion to open your eyes by drinking Shade of the Evening, eerily similar to Blood Raven's rhetoric to Bran. In some, we get proof he's been around the world and back again. He can manipulate slash control those most keen to destroy him. And strong evidence he's a green seer with magical capacity we've only just begun to experience the potency of. Hashtag holy own. Hashtag third act villain. Hashtag things will never be the same after this one. I like that third act villain. That's good. And that's what I'm afraid of, Strat. But I love all of this. You're on Greyjoy contemplation. And I love seeing the dynamic between he and his brother play out in such a dangerous way because he's just rising in our charts as a guy to look out for. And we still don't quite know what to think about all this stuff if it involves wizards. When someone like Victorian says it just after he's been fighting and he's talking to Newt the Barber and he's a little annoyed about it and he's like, oh, you're on this wizards. Mm-hmm. It sounds like we're reading a real book of magic and sorcerers and not like we're reading A Song of Ice and Fire that has a lot of those elements but is usually so rooted and the here and now and the kinds of things that we say to each other. So I'm just really excited to see. I love it. Where it actually goes, right? I like, love it. I need the winds of winter because I want to know what's the deal with this guy. We already know how useful armor is in a fight after this reading today. So what is Valyrian steel armor going to do to our brains? 
<laughs> I can't even begin I don't know to if comprehend. I can handle that, you know? Mm-hmm. No, these this is fun. These chapters are fun. And thank you to everybody who sent in their owns and participated with us over on Twitter. You can find us at Game of Owns on Twitter or by searching for Game of Owns on Facebook or by sending us an email to contact at gameofowns.com. And now that Twitter allows for many more characters, your owns can be much longer and have many more hashtags. So looking forward to that. You can do so many things now. Next week, we're not pulling any punches. It's right on to the Wayward Bride and Tyrion 7. We're inviting back a special guest, friend of ours. You may have heard us talk about him already in this episode. He personally asked us, I need to come on this episode. He didn't know that it was going to be paired in this way. He didn't know Tyrion 7 was going to be paired with the Wayward Bride, but... We've already talked about it very briefly with Jeff, Um, and so we're really, really excited to dive into it together on the podcast. And if you want to read along with us and catch up, um, you can find our reading order at afeastwithdragons.com. And send in your owns for that chapter. Mm -hmm. I have a feeling we're going to talk a lot about The Lost Lord, The Windblown, and The the Reaver, too, probably at the top or kind of. Or for the it's whole time. It's all kind of melding together. So I'm, it's going to be a, a good episode. I think that's it, everyone. So thanks for hanging out. We hope that you had a good time. If you're not reading along, read these. Just read these chapters. Just read these couple chapters. It's pretty dark. No, it's good stuff. And, <laughs> and we had fun. So thanks for following along. And we will be back very, very soon. And before we leave, support for today's show comes from War Dragons, a mobile real-time strategy game where players directly control dragons to attack enemy bases. With over 150 different dragons to collect, players can join guilds to launch co-op attacks and co-op defense. And we definitely encourage you to download the game and check out all 150 of these different dragons and collect all of them. And remember, you're fighting with dragons during these co-op attacks and defenses with your friends. Best of all, there's a new endgame feature called Atlas, which is a 3D persistent world where players can forge alliances with other teams, build up dragon-led armies, fight for new land, and secure lucrative rewards. Just go to wardragons.com owns via your phone or tablet device to download the game.